You are listening to Primary Care Perspectives, a podcast where pediatric experts from Children's Hospital of Philadelphia and other guests discuss primary care issues that are on their minds and the hot topics that all pediatricians see affecting their daily practice. This podcast is for general informational and educational purposes only and is not to be considered as medical advice for any particular patient. Clinicians must rely on their own informed clinical judgment in making recommendations to their patients. Hi, I'm Dr. Katie Lockwood, a primary care pediatrician at the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia, and today I'm talking about intimate partner violence. Joining me, I have three guests, Dr. Ashley Murray, an attending physician in the emergency department and a Center for Violence Prevention scholar, Dr. Melissa Dichter, an associate professor at Temple University School of Social Work, and Kalina Brown, an advocate for survivors who is here representing the caregiver experience at CHOP. Thank you all for joining me today. As a way of introduction, I would love Kalina to start us off by telling us a little bit about herself and her experience at CHOP. Hi, my name is Kalina Brown. I am a mother of three. My kids are patients at CHOP CareBox, and that is how I was referred to a lot of doctors and a lot of different people in the world of domestic violence. Back in 2015, my kid's father and I had a very bad domestic relationship. Since then, I have become an advocate for domestic violence, and I've also sat on different boards as a board member and a board expertise on domestic violence and how to help caregivers and physicians to understand what to do and what not to do with helping people in the situation that I was in myself. Thank you so much for sharing your story with us today. We're going to keep coming back to you too, but it's helpful to have your perspective leading this off. We know that intimate partner violence affects millions of adults and children each year. In fact, intimate partner violence exposure, or IPV, can have a significant harmful consequence for the child. In primary care, we know the benefits of routine screenings for things that can identify child risks and lead to interventions that improve child health and well-being, and IPV screening is definitely included in that. Dr. Murray, some could argue that IPV is an issue for adult medicine. So why does the pediatrician have such an important role in IPV screening? Thanks for that great question, Dr. Lockwood. So I feel like this is a question I get asked often, and I often feel that I'm advocating for IPV screening with pediatricians alike. And we know that 15 million children in the United States are exposed each year, and 50% of these exposures are often severe, so often seeing physical abuse or sexual abuse of a parent. So with those striking statistics, sometimes that's not enough to convince pediatricians and other providers So we think about what is the unique position that we're in. So as a pediatrician myself, we're in a unique position to screen given these inherent risks to a child's well-being. We know that abused women are more likely to seek healthcare for themselves or for their children, I'm sorry, rather than themselves. And that women may feel even more comfortable discussing family violence with their child's medical provider rather than their own. You know, screening can be an important part of the child's social history and You know, if we make it routine in the pediatric setting, it allows our families to feel that this is expected. And so, you know, not only are the statistics important, but also the risk if we don't screen and find it and help families. Those are really great points about the important role that a pediatrician plays. 
In terms of the scope of the problem, would you just give us some sense of, I'm kind of wondering how well we are at identifying this problem in terms of, you know, how big of a problem it is and are we picking it up enough? Dr. Dichter, do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, thank you. Um, So national survey data indicate that as many as one in three people report experiencing intimate partner violence or IPV in their lifetimes and past year rates are about one in 20. But statistics in this area are really hard to capture because this is often a hidden issue and because of variation in how, whom, and what we ask. Mm -hmm. We know that IPV affects all sectors of the population. We see higher rates of severe IPV and adverse impacts among women, but women certainly aren't the only ones who experience IPV. We've seen in our research that the rates of documented IPV are lower in clinical screening than in survey research, and this is likely due to barriers to disclosing IPV that individuals face in the clinical setting. So people may have concerns about lack of privacy and confidentiality, concerns of safety risks, retaliation from abusive partners or former partners, concerns about stigma or judgment or what someone like a clinician might do in response to disclosure. So we know that people, though, are unlikely to spontaneously disclose IPV experience when they're not asked, and that people experience IPV also face barriers to disclosing even when they are asked. So we think it's critical to ask and also recognize that whatever we're seeing in response to surveys or in reporting in the clinical setting is likely an undercount of the true scope of the experience. And I think that, you know, comment that Dr. Dichter makes that we're underreporting is really, and the barriers to disclosure for survivors really highlights the point that we started with about routine screening and how if we make this a routine part of practice that parents are will be screened, then they, you know, hopefully over time feel more comfortable talking about it with their pediatricians. That's a great point. And we started off with a story of a mother, Kalina, and we often think of IPV as an issue that impacts mothers. But Dr. Jichter, you just mentioned that we should be thinking beyond just women. So can you talk about the demographics a little bit and who else we should be screening? Sure. So anyone can experience IPV from a current or a former intimate partner. The data do show that women of reproductive age are at the highest risk of experiencing IPV and that pregnancy and parenting can increase risks. But as I said, anyone can experience IPV, and it is important that we screen and provide services to anyone who might be exposed. So that includes all genders and ages, regardless of parenting or relationship status. It is important that the healthcare setting may be the only place where IPV survivors can learn about IPV services. So it's critical that that information be made available to everyone. The current national recommendations based on evidence from randomized controlled trials are that we should be providing screening and counseling or linked to services for all women of reproductive age, because this is the population on which we have the most evidence to support screening. But we've also found in other research, including qualitative studies, that there are substantial rates of past year IPV among middle-aged and older women, as well as people who don't identify as women, people who are male or non-binary or another gender identity. And so we find support for extending screening beyond women of reproductive age. That's a great thing for us to keep in mind. And Dr. Murray, as an emergency department physician, how often are IPV and child abuse co-occurring? 
Yeah, that's, you know, that's a tough question. There are different varying reports depending on the source. Data comes out of CPS reports as well as reports from domestic violence shelters. And the range of co-occurrence of child abuse really is pretty broad from anywhere from 30% to 60%, depending on the data source. You know, we find that other risk factors like poverty and depression, substance abuse may increase those risks as well of that co-occurrence. And then there's also the child that's inadvertently injured by being, you know, caught in the crossfire, for example. So there's lots of, you know, uncovering cases of child abuse, which, you know, is a reason why we advocate for screening for IPV before the child abuse happens so that we can prevent those things. Mm -hmm. Right. Well, you have both provided us a lot of information about the importance of this topic and the scope of this topic. Kalina, I'm really hoping that you can help give us some advice for pediatricians in terms of how they do their IPV screening. What mistakes have you seen and what's worked well? In my case, what worked for me was that my kid's pediatrician, she and I built up a very personal rapport where she didn't necessarily make me feel uncomfortable whenever I spoke to her, Mm -hmm. even if it was in regards to my kids. She listened. Mm -hmm. And a lot of times as caregivers, we feel that we're not heard when we're trying to speak on things in regards to our kids. So we feel as though if they won't listen to us in regards to our kids, how would we know they'll listen to us about our safety or our kids' safety? And Mm -hmm. a lot of times, a lot of parents and caregivers tell me through conversation that their biggest fear is if I tell them they're going to try to take my kids. The stigma between domestic violence and parents or caregivers is so broad that we assume that if the parent or the caregiver is the one in the relationship that is domestic and the kids aren't involved, that the kids could potentially be taken out of the home as well because it's deemed unfit. So I think that to build up a stigma for caregivers and doctors and pediatricians to let them know that, you know, they have a voice in their opinions and their thoughts do matter will allow the door to be open enough for them to be comfortable to speak on those things. That's great advice. I love I love hearing that it was that long-term relationship that you had with the pediatrician and that trust that you had already built that really was the foundation. So thank you for sharing that. I would never want my screening for a patient to put that patient or caregiver at increased risk. So what are some of the safety considerations in terms of when, how, and where I do my screening and my documentation? This is such an important question that I emphasize a lot in my trainings. You know, working in an emergency department, I don't get the opportunity like Kalina did to get to know her pediatrician the way I get to know my patients. I have to build trust very quickly and show empathy. And so these are all really important things when I train other providers, physicians, nurses to screen or to ask families about family violence. And so specifically, as far as the when, most importantly, we only recommend screening when there is one adult caregiver present with the child because you're not sure who could potentially be the survivor or the perpetrator in that relationship. And so we don't want to isolate or be, you know, very assuming of genders. Mm -hmm. And so we recommend screening when there's only one caregiver present, adult caregiver. It doesn't matter who that adult caregiver is. It can be a parent, a guardian, a foster parent, any relative. Number two, how to screen. So thinking about how to screen, particularly it's important to understand the age and the developmental state of the child that's in the room. So children under two 
or less verbal who don't understand, it's okay to verbally screen or to ask questions. But once you've hit the age of two, kids are really smart and they repeat and they understand. So we really recommending once you're close to that age of two to only screen non-verbally. Mm-hmm. So you can screen like we do in the emergency department using a card, a laminated non-verbal card that the caregiver can read them to myself. Number three, I think you asked about where to screen and document. Yeah, so about screening where, it really depends on what works best for the workflow and the environment. You know, I really advocate for safe space to screen. And so we recommend screening in primary care and the emergency department because we know some families seek a lot of their care in the ER compared to their pediatricians Mm -hmm. and vice versa. So really wherever is comfortable. As far as the documentation goes, that's very tricky as, you know, we moved into electronic health records and to the Cures Act, medical records will be visible pretty quickly to both caregivers and they have access to their child's chart, which they should have access to their child's chart. So it's important as a, a pediatrician or clinician, if you are going to document details of IPV in a child's chart, it needs to be done in a safe and secure way. And what I mean by that, it's gotta be in a protected note that cannot be easily released or easily seen by the perpetrator, because theoretically that could put the family and the survivor at risk And so oftentimes, you know, as we navigate the world of EHR and trying to understand how to protect notes and the confidentiality of patients and their families, we're trying to opt out of over-documenting. We really don't need to document the details of these relationships in the child's chart. I know sometimes that feels uncomfortable to say that, but there could potentially be more harm with documenting than less harm without documenting. So hopefully that answers your questions. I can clarify if there's anything else you need to know about the documentation, but it's pretty detailed and we we talk about this often. That is very helpful for us to keep in mind. I think it's something that we might not intuitively think of because we are used to documenting everything that happens in an encounter. But like you said, there might not be utility here for documentation and potentially could be harm that comes from it. So it's certainly something for us to keep in mind. I know that one of the biggest barriers for pediatricians screening for IPV is not knowing what to do when they get a positive screen. So Dr. Dichter, can you help us sort through what the next steps are after we get a positive? Sure. I think the first thing to do is recognize the human aspects of that conversation. So to look at the person, show empathy, show care, show sensitivity and validation of the fact that someone has just disclosed this to you. Mm -hmm. The simple act of letting someone know that you've heard them, that you care about them, and that you will work to help them can really go a long way. What doesn't work well is when a disclosure of IPV experience is met with no response or with reactions that exacerbate feelings of stigma or judgment. For example, Mm -hmm. asking things like, why would you let that happen to you? Or suggesting that someone should just leave the relationship, which often isn't safe or feasible to do at that time. These kind of responses can put blame on the victim and reflect a lack of understanding of the dynamics of IPV and can really inhibit someone from seeking help and disclosing again. Mm -hmm. You also want to make sure that you are able to help connect that person with available resources that may be available to help them in addressing their needs related to IPV. So it's important to know about what those resources are and how to access them. The pediatricians don't have to be experts themselves 
in knowing what all the resources are and how to access them, but at least knowing that resources exist and how to connect with them is important. At Children's Hospital of Philadelphia, you're very lucky to have a relationship with a community provider through the Lutheran Settlement House Stop IPV program. So you can do in-house referral right there and then. All providers should be able to have the information in their clinical setting to know how to access those resources and connect the patients or the caregivers with those resources. I think it's important to also recognize that the survivors tend to be experts in their own lives and their safety. So talking with the particular survivor about issues around safety, about things like documentation, about what kinds of help people may need or want. People may be experiencing IPV and not need or want services at that moment. It's important that you're able to help them identify where the services are and how to reach them, but to really follow the survivor's lead in what they need and want at that moment. So validating and supporting the disclosure, expressing sensitivity and care for confidentiality and safety, knowing about how to find and access the resources and offer help. And I think it's also important to note that if it is not safe to screen in a particular setting, as Dr. Murray noted, there may be others around or older children who could share information that may make things less safe. It may also be safe to screen, but not safe for the survivor to disclose at that moment. So it's important that information is made available in that healthcare setting, in the pediatric setting. Sometimes that is direct information to the patients or caregivers. Sometimes it is also just having information available, having posters up, having information in bathrooms, having flyers, having information on the website so that people can find the information they need about the services that exist. That's great. You echoed so many of the points that Kalina mentioned earlier. And my next question, actually, which was that sometimes in primary care, we have families who screen positive and, as you mentioned, aren't yet ready to take the next step. And it can feel frustrating sometimes to the provider who is ready to offer help and support to have the patient tell them that they're not ready themselves yet. But in primary care, we have the benefit of a longitudinal relationship with families. So how important is it for us to keep following up when we have a positive screen the next time we see that family? Or should we just back off if a parent says that they aren't interested? So I think that is really important, an important question to ask, because I think you may have families and survivors disclose, but they're not ready or interested in support or being connected at this time. And that's okay. And what I often will tell families is, thank you for sharing that with me today. I'd like to let you know that we're always here. CHOP is always here. At any point, at any of your upcoming visits, you're interested in help today or or speaking with someone, we're here to help you. Mm -hmm. So I think just being positive and keeping the that open that you're you're there for them and you're not forcing them to disclose or forcing them to speak with someone sometimes just to make ourselves feel better. You mm-hmm. know, we, we're worried about that family, especially when we have relationships with families. Even in the emergency department, after short visits, we get to know and love our families very quickly. And so we get invested in them and the children. And it can mm-hmm. be hard to let that go. I think the other important thing to recognize is that relationships are dynamic and change. And even though someone may be in a safe relationship at one point, 
that may change in the next relationship and vice versa. And so I think it's important whether you have a positive screen or not, or someone discloses or not, that we continually ask in a trauma-informed way and keeping those lines of communication open. Mm -hmm. Great point. In research that we've done with many survivors, we hear that people often appreciate the follow-up and the check-in, the expression of care and concern. And especially if someone is not interested or ready for resources at a particular point, continuing to check in and follow up and offer services can be really helpful and appreciated. And it's also important to follow that particular survivor's lead. And if Mm -hmm. the survivor is saying, no, I'm fine, this is really not an issue for me, I think it's okay to, to keep checking in, but making sure that you're also offering the resources and following the survivor's lead about what they need and want at that moment. Kalina may also have some helpful insights on this topic as well from her perspective. Yeah, Kalina, I'm wondering about the impact of your referral to Lutheran Settlement House on you and your children and how that changed things for you. Yes. Dr. Winters was the primary physician for my kids and the relationship that she had with Lutheran played a tremendous part in how we were able to get out safely, how we were able to get into a program that they offered, a two-year housing program that they offered us. We ended up going into a domestic violence shelter and the shelter that we went to helped us with furniture for the house. So when we moved in, we moved in with not needing anything. Everything was provided for us, whether it was from the shelter or Lutheran in themselves. And I remember vividly one day at the shelter, it was a weekend, Dr. Winters called and she just checked on me. She's like, I'm not asking how the boys are doing. I'm just asking, how are you? Mm. And that went a long way for me because it showed the empathy and the caring that she had not only for my sons, but for me as well. So I think that played a huge part in helping me gain my self-confidence, my self-love, my self-respect, and getting myself back together from being torn apart for years in a domestic relationship. But I think that the relationship that they built with their patients and the caregivers, how they pursue it, and she asked me what I needed. She didn't tell me what I should do or how she think I should feel, but she let me lead the conversation and to give as little or as much information to her that I felt at that time I needed to give. I think that goes a very long way. Wow, thank you. I mean, this is a good thing that this is audio because this is the first podcast that I'm going to cry on, Kalina. <laughs> that was really beautiful. And what a shout out to Dr. Winters at Carabots. Um, yes. We all appreciate her so much. And uh, know that there are many other versions of Dr. Winters out there who are helping patients and their caregivers like you. To c- wrap this up, Dr. Murray, can you tell us about the Stop IPV project and what's on the horizon with your IPV work at CHOP? Since we've talked about it a little bit already, but really just want to know what what's happening. Sure. Yeah. So the Stop IPV program has been a medical community partnership at CHOP for almost a decade now. And it is a partnership with the our community partners, Lutheran Settlement House, And Lutheran Settlement House is an amazing social service nonprofit up in Fishtown that's been around for over 100 years. And I can't say enough things about Lutheran Settlement House. And I think this medical community partnership, what it highlights is the warm handoff. Dr. Dichter and Kalina highlighted aspects of all of this, but I like to call it the warm handoff because I feel like that is really important 
when it comes to connecting survivors. I think oftentimes at the pediatrician's office or even the emergency department, we give people phone numbers and we just say, here, call this, mm-hmm. um, follow up with this specialist. And I think that can be really challenging to navigate and overwhelming. I know, at least I know for myself. And what's unique about this partnership is that we have two full-time IPD specialists or medical advocates who are licensed social workers in domestic violence who work at CHOP as part of this program. But also it allows us that when a survivor discloses, we say, would you like a call from one of our advocates? And so that Mm -hmm. warm handoff happens where we can give them a name of the advocate and the advocate themselves can follow up with the family. So it takes that burden and that step off the family and and we do the work Mm -hmm. and reach out to them. And I love that part of the program. One of the big kind of next steps on the horizon for this program is a partnership with Dr. Dichter and Jessica Dubois, who is one of the medical advocate supervisor at Lutheran Settlement House. We are in the middle of a three-year Robert Wood Johnson project where we are evaluating a feedback tool where we are listening to the survivors. We are getting feedback from the survivors and their medical experience with referral to Lutheran Settlement House. And we're going to gather that information from survivors and use that information to improve the healthcare response. And that is really exciting because it's taking the survivors' voices and what we're doing well and what we need to improve and kind of fix in the healthcare system. And then the last thing that's on the horizon, which I'm really excited that Kalina will be a part of, is um, through the Office of Community Relations, we've received a grant to create storytelling videos. So several of our survivors through Lutheran Settlement House will be sharing their stories and will be creating mini training videos using their stories to improve the healthcare response. So we're really excited for both of these projects in the next six months to a year. Great. So many wonderful things that you're working on. And we really appreciate the work that you, Drs. Murray and Dr. are doing. And Kalina, thank you so much for your advocacy and for your sharing of your story here today. We are grateful for all of you and Lutheran Settlement House. And thank you for teaching us today. Thank you for having me. Thank you. Yeah, thank you so much. Thank you for listening to this episode of Primary Care Perspectives. You can download and subscribe to future episodes on iTunes, or visit chop.edu slash PCP podcast for a listing of all episodes. I look forward to our next chat.